I think that one of the saddest things in life is when you see someone who at one point in their life was a very solid, fully committed follower of Christ, and they were very passionate about Christ. But then something happens in their life, and as time passes, that passion for Christ grows cold. And they may even reach a point where they really have very little interest in Christ any longer. I've seen this happen far too often. Let me share one example with you. Back when I was a freshman in college, I entered college not really caring all that much about God. I grew up attending church, but to me, church was primarily a social gathering, and I really didn't know much about what God had to do with my life. Now, that freshman year, I lived in a co-ed dorm, and across the hall from me in the dorm was a girl's room, and there was one of the girls who lived in there who was quite outgoing, and we became pretty good friends through the course of that year. And one of the things about her is that she was a very passionate Christian. She, she loved Jesus. It was very evident to, really, people all around campus that she loved Jesus. And she talked about Jesus a lot. She would oftentimes tell me about what she was reading in Scripture. And, and um, I mean, she, she wanted to live by biblical convictions. I mean, she had some very strong convictions about how she lived, about how she wanted to honor God with her life, how she wanted to remain sexually pure until marriage, how... She really wanted to bless God and be a blessing to others in everything that she did. And I listen to all this stuff, and I'll say, at the time, I appreciate the friendship, and I appreciate her heart for God, but it still didn't really make that much sense to me. But I look back on that time, and I do see a couple of ways that she definitely influenced me for the good. One thing was she acted kind of as a preservative in my life. In Scripture, Jesus says that Christians are the salt of the world. And, and one of the functions of salt is as a preservative. And um, I think in the midst of a lot of influences that were kind of pulling me towards moral decline, really, um, there that first year of college, God really used this young woman to help keep my morals from sliding quite as, quite as quickly. She served as a preservative in my life. But also, I think she really helped give me a soft heart towards the gospel, so that then, late in my sophomore year of college, when a student in one of my classes shared the gospel with me and was asking a bunch of difficult spiritual questions, then I was ready to, to understand the gospel and to follow Christ. And so late in my sophomore year, I did uh, turn my life over to Christ, surrendered fully to Him. And I remember I wanted to tell this girl who I knew from my freshman year about this because I figured she'd probably be excited about this. And so we had lunch one day, and I was just sharing, hey, the other day I didn't, I didn't know how to really explain what happened. But I said, I mean, I just placed my faith in Christ. And she was so excited for me. I mean, she shared even how she's been praying for me for a long time that I would come to know Christ. And God definitely used her in tremendous ways in my life to prepare me to become a follower of Jesus. Now, fast forward a couple years, she got to know um, a Christian man in the, in the campus ministry they were both involved in, and they ended up falling in love and getting married. And over the course of time, though, after she graduated from college, things began to happen, and her heart for God began to grow a little bit colder. She ended up in a romantic relationship with a man who was not her husband. She ended up getting a divorce, marrying this other man, and today, you know, they live a, a pretty nice, comfortable life, a pretty posh life. But Jesus really isn't a part of the story anymore for them. This young woman who was very passionate about Christ, who God used in significant ways in my life. I mean, like I said, she was known all around campus for her love for Jesus. Now, Jesus plays very little, if any, role in her life anymore. 
As I said, I've seen this story happen over and over and over. It's even happened with people who've sat in these pews before here at Freedens, even during my three and a half years here. I've seen people who at one point were passionate about growing closer to Jesus. Something happened in their lives, and their heart for God grew cold. It's not just that they aren't attending here anymore. They aren't attending any church, some of them. And like I said, they, they don't have a lot of interest in growing closer to God anymore. It's something that I've seen happen over and over that in my mind is just heartbreaking. And so as we're standing here today, or as I'm standing here and you're, you're here too, I think one of the things to make very clear is that we are in a battle if we are trying to follow Christ. And we are all vulnerable to falling away at some point or another. We all have chinks in the armor, uh, something that could, could eventually lead us away from Christ. We are all vulnerable, myself included. I know that there are a lot of people who are much more godly and much more passionate about Christ, much more knowledgeable about the Bible than I am, who have fallen away. And if they have, I can too. And I know all of us here are vulnerable. So we have a question of what causes people who at one point were very passionate about following Christ to then at a later point in life fall away. Today I want to examine this topic through the lens of Jesus' first followers, the 12 disciples. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Today we are going to continue our series called The Easter Experience. This is a six-week series leading up to Easter. We're trying to gain a fresh perspective on the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And I know for me it's been very refreshing to go through this, especially in the Easter Experience life group that I'm a part of. I know that many here are part of these groups that meet throughout the week and and look at a DVD uh, study that's based on the Easter Experience. And I know for me and, and I think others in my group, it's very convicting at times, but also refreshing to gain these fresh perspectives on what Jesus has done on our behalf. And also to enjoy doing that in the context of other people, to build relationships with others here at Freedom's too. And I know, like I said, I've been encouraged by that, and I pray that you have as well. But today we're going to essentially do three different case studies of the early disciples and see some not-so-great moments in their lives But to study these and to see, okay, how can this help us to remain faithful to God in our lives? So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive into these three different case studies. So let's pray. Father, um, it's humbling and and challenging when we think about this reality of how easy it is to fall away from you. And I imagine that we can probably all think of people who we've known who at one point were following you faithfully, and now their heart towards you has grown cold. Lord, these are hard topics. And we also admit that it's hard when we look back in history and see how some of your closest followers are so unfaithful to you in your greatest hour of need. And I pray that as we look in the scripture that you will teach us today and convict us and guide us and challenge us in how we can follow you faithfully for the rest of our lives. And this morning, Lord, we do want to lift up those who have... um, followed you for a while, but not any longer. I lift up that young woman who who I knew in college and pray that that you will work in her life and the life of her family to draw them back to yourself. We pray for those whose names are written in this box up here during the 40 days of prayer on these cards, Lord, that you will be at work in their lives, softening their hearts to the gospel and bringing them to that point where they commit fully to you. So, Lord, today as we look in the scripture, help us grow in our commitment to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're looking at three different case studies. The first case study looks at the disciples as a whole group. 
And we're going to look at this. We will be jumping around to several different parts of this passage today. But the first part, we're just going to look at one verse and then kind of do some study of what took place there. One verse, which is verse 56 of Matthew chapter 26. And that verse says, this is right after Jesus was arrested. It says, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All the disciples who were gathered around Jesus, they deserted him and fled. And I think when we read this, we have to wonder, okay, what happened to the disciples at this point? These are men, a dozen men, who had given up everything to follow Christ. I mean, they had left their businesses. They would left their families. They would left their friends. They would faced ridicule because they wanted to follow Christ. They'd seen Jesus do amazing things. I mean, even amazing miracles. I mean, he made the blind see. He made the crippled people walk. He, he turned, at one point, he turned a funeral procession into a family reunion. I mean, he did amazing things. They saw him refute the Jewish leaders when they tried to challenge him. They even had times where they could have left him and they said, no, Jesus, we're going to stick with you. There's one time in John chapter 6 where Jesus was giving some hard teaching. And a handful of other followers who'd been with Jesus, they began to turn back and no longer follow Jesus because of what Jesus was teaching. And then Jesus turned to these 12 disciples and said, you guys want to leave me too? I mean, these others have left me. Do you guys want to leave me? Then Peter spoke up and said, Jesus, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. So there were times, even when others were forsaking Jesus, that these disciples had remained faithful. And Jesus had been dropping warnings about what was going to happen, about how they were going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be betrayed uh, into the hands of, of the Jewish leaders, how he was going to suffer, how he would die, and then how he'd rise again. He shared this multiple times with the disciples in order to prepare them for what was going to take place. So they'd seen amazing things, they'd been committed to him, and they'd been prepared in advance of what would happen. Yet still we see then all the disciples deserted him and fled. I want to rewind a little bit in the story to try to diagnose, okay, what happened with the disciples that that caused all this to take place. And to see this, we're going to back up to verse 36 of this passage. Beginning in verse 36, this took place just, just not that many minutes earlier. This, this is right after the, the Last Supper. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When Jesus came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. 
So we see the disciples. Jesus is out there trying to prepare himself spiritually for what's going to take place. He's praying and he tells the disciples, you guys should pray too because it's going to be hard for you as well. So Jesus goes off. He prays for a while. He gets some spiritual strength to face what's going to be coming up. He goes back multiple times and each time he goes back to the disciples, they have fallen asleep. Now, on one hand, I don't think we should be too hard on them because we've probably all had times too where we know we need to stay awake but we just can't. I mean, school is one of those opportune times where, I mean, you're sitting there in school, whether it's in grade school or in college, and, or maybe in some training program for your work. You're just sitting there at your desk. You're trying to pay attention. And all of a sudden, you begin a little head bob. I mean, we've all seen that. Most of us, if not all of us, have probably had that happen to us at some point. I can remember a number of times for myself or Times where others in class experience that, and it's quite humorous, but it's embarrassing when it happens to you, but it happens to all of us, where we have those times where we know we need to be alert and pay attention, but we begin to nod off. Maybe that's even happening to you right now. I hope not, but I know it happens in church as well. I've seen it happen here, and so I know it does happen. It, it, it has nothing to do with the... <laughs> I see some fingers being pointed out there. <laughs> It has very little to do with the significance of the situation or the content of what's being shared. Sometimes it does because things are boring. But at other times, it's just you're so tired. And that's what's going on with the disciples here. They're just tired and they cannot keep themselves awake to pray. And Jesus comes to them and tries to wake them up and say, Look, you guys need to watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's saying, I know that you want to stay awake. I know you want to be prepared for the challenges that are going to come up. Your body's weak. You're going to be tempted to go in other ways to flee, to not follow through on what you need to do. There's a temptation associated with that. And Jesus is saying, you need to watch and pray to make sure you don't fall into that temptation. Now, I think we all probably know what it's like to know the right thing to do, but then to have those desires and urges that push us the other direction. That's what temptation really is. I mean, sometimes it's relatively harmless in and of itself. I mean, you have that bag of chips in your uh, kitchen that's calling your name. You give in the temptation to go eat it. Uh, you, the snooze button. I mean, your alarm goes off in the morning. You're tired. You just think, oh, I, I just need a little bit more sleep. So you hit the snooze button a couple times. I mean, as long as it doesn't... I mean, there can come a point where it can become a little bit too much. But in and of itself... I mean, you have the temptation, you know you need to get up, but you don't. And at least you delay a little bit. In and of itself, those aren't too bad. Some temptations, though, are a little bit more harmful. The temptation to spend more money than you have. I mean, credit card debt is rampant in our culture. And it becomes addictive where you think you need more and more and more. Then the temptation to want to buy more and more, even when you don't have the means, that becomes harmful. Or the, the temptation to drop some little snide comment about someone to vent your feelings when you really should have just kept that inside. Those temptations, you know the right thing you should do, but you don't do it. Those are a little bit more harmful. And some temptations are incredibly destructive. Temptation to, to have an affair with someone else. The temptation to turn your back completely on Christ. Those are very destructive temptations. They all have the same root where on the one hand we know, we, know, or we know the good thing we should do, but we sometimes lack the strength to actually follow through. And I think Jesus really hits the nail on the head when he's talking about temptation as the root of what pulls us away from him. 
This temptation to flee, this temptation to save their hides is what causes the disciples to flee. And, and I think at the bottom line, anytime you see someone wander away from Christ, or turn their back on Christ, they've yielded to some sort of temptation where they know the good thing they ought to do, but their, their body is weak, their will is weak, and they go a different direction. And so we look here to the disciples and wonder, okay, what caused them to give into that temptation, the pressure that caused them to flee? I think one of the reasons is fatigue. I mean, you look at the disciples. They were tired. Um, I mean, you can't blame them for that. There was a lot of stress. It was late at night. But the fatigue was partly what caused them to give into into the temptation. Today we are looking at a number of different reasons for why we give into temptations that lead us away from Christ. One of the reasons is simply fatigue. And again, I think we can all identify with that where we know we should spend maybe half an hour in prayer, but we're tired after a long day at work, and so we plop down in front of the TV. We know we should get up early to read the Bible before we go off to work or school, but, you know, that snooze button beckons. We know we should spend some extra time with the kids when we get home from work, but again, we're tired. And so instead of spending time with them and and praying with them and, and just investing time in them, we end up just kind of letting them play off on their own until bedtime so that we can plop down on the couch and veg. Fatigue really can wear on us and, and lull us in the practices that lead us away from Christ. Another thing that we see happening here is the fatigue allowed the disciples to give in to their fears. I mean, it would have been very scary to see Jesus led away and arrested. Fear, I think, was what caused them to desert Jesus and to flee. And because this fear came about because they were fatigued, which didn't lead them to pray, which didn't lead them to be well prepared to deal with the temptation that would come their way. And I think that fear is another factor that causes a lot of people today to no longer follow Christ faithfully. Maybe it's a fear of what's going to happen if I fully surrender to Jesus. We like to be in control of our lives, don't we? And surrender to Christ says, Jesus, I'm going to give you the steering wheel of my life. You have the driver's seat. You lead me where you want to go. And that's scary. And that fear can lead us to want to take back the reins of our life and no longer surrender to Christ. Sometimes it's fear of what other people around us are going to think if we commit fully to Christ. I've seen that happen many, many times. It can keep someone from following Christ in the first place or it can derail someone somewhere along the lines. So we see here in the disciples, when we look at them as a group, that fatigue and fear are factors that cause them to give in to temptations that lead them to be unfaithful to Christ. Now I want to look at another case study, the case study of of Simon Peter. This is a very well-known event that took place. Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers. But listen to what happened just not, not many hours after Jesus was arrested. Peter evidently had wanted to, um, even though he'd fled from the arrest scene, he still was interested in seeing, okay, what's going to happen to Jesus? So he's following at a bit of a distance, just kind of observing what's taking place from the background. Picking up in verse 69 of Matthew 26, it says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then Peter went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. 
After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And so we see what takes place here. And Peter, it's just such a tragic and heartbreaking series of events where Peter had been so close to Jesus, he'd stood up for Jesus a lot. And now, in a moment of truth, he turns away and denies even knowing Jesus at all. I want to back up a little bit as we do the second case study on Simon Peter uh, to a passage that begins in verse 31 of Matthew 26 that shows a little bit of the background of what led Peter to this unfaithfulness to Christ. Beginning in verse 31, this happens at the very end of the Last Supper, right before Jesus is uh, out in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. It says, Then Jesus told the disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. So we see what's taking place here. Jesus is warning that you all are going to fall away. And Peter defiantly says, you know, even if they all do, I'm going to stay faithful to you, Jesus. I will not fall away. I will never disown you. Even if I have to die with you, I will stay faithful to you. And what I hear in this is, is another reason that we give in this temptation. It's the reason of pride. You see, Jesus had just said, you're all going to fall away tonight. Now, humility would say, Jesus, I don't want to fall away. That's scary. What can I do to not fall away? Jesus gave them the recipe. I mean, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. But instead of being humble and asking Jesus, okay, how can I stay faithful to you? Peter stands up and says, I'll never fall away. That won't happen to me. Surely not me. Maybe them, but I'm stronger than they are. I can make it. I'll be faithful to you to the end. And when we look at this idea of pride, pride basically says, you know what? I can do it myself. I don't need any help. Pride overestimates our own abilities and underestimates our need to submit to God and depend on him. And that's what Peter had done. He'd overestimated his own ability to stay faithful to Christ. And that is a recipe for disaster. I mean, pride really blinds us to our own needs. I mean, people say, well, I'm not a prideful person. Well, it's pride that causes us to say that. And pride, pride just causes us to get all puffed up and think we don't need anyone else and we don't recognize our own frailty and vulnerability. A little bit later when I was in college, I transferred to a different school for my fourth and fifth years. And when I got there, um, I was involved with one other student helping to begin this new campus ministry on the campus. And it was very exciting. Like I said, we started out with two of us students. And by the end of those two years there, we'd seen the ministry grow to about 100 students involved. And, I mean, in addition to the, into, to the numerical growth, we saw a lot of life transformation. I mean, it was very exciting. And, and God was very powerfully at work there. 
I've counted eight or nine of the students who are involved there during that time who've gone in into full-time vocational ministry after college. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible in itself. And I also can think of a lot of others um, who are in a variety of other types of jobs who are serving God faithfully, who are seeing God do amazing things through them in their workplace and their churches. It was really an amazing, astounding time. Now, I said we started out with two of us students. The other student, um, I mean, we were good friends. I mean, he was very influential and very important at the beginning. But then at the beginning of that second year, he got involved with a girl. Girls, these boyfriend-girlfriend relationships sometimes aren't that helpful in our walk with God if we aren't careful in how we approach them. And this girl he got involved with was not a Christian. And a bunch of us warned him, you know, missionary dating, which is what that's called, is not very healthy or successful typically. Missionary dating is where a Christian begins dating a non-Christian and hopes that they will be able to bring the, Christian to, or the non-Christian to Christ. Missionary dating. I don't recommend it. And it's not biblical either. And we are told in Scripture not to be unequally yoked with other people. And, and through dating and marriage, that, I mean, if it's Christian and non-Christian, that's unequally yoked. It's not a recipe for following God typically. And we tried to warn my friend, hey, be careful with this. But he kept saying, I know what I'm doing here. It'll be fine. She'll grow closer to Christ. And I, I lived with him that year. Um, we had a house of five of us guys. And at one point, I mean, he began to pull away a little bit at that time. But at one point, it was just he and I in the house. And we were sitting in the living room and talking. And, and he said, you know, it's been a couple months since I last read the Bible. And this is a guy who the year before, when we were starting this ministry, I mean, he was in Scripture every day. I mean, he was passionate about Christ. It's been a couple of months since I've picked up a Bible. And he was really honest. He said, you know, my girlfriend, she's not nearly as far along spiritually as I was hoping she would be at this point. But he kept pursuing that relationship. He was in deep enough already that he couldn't change the course, so he thought. And he ended up getting married. And he never completely turned his back on God. But the passion for Christ never returned. At least not up to this point yet. And I look at that and I think, you know, a lot of this is pride. Where he thought he was going to be strong enough to go against teaching a scripture, to go against the warnings of other Christians around him. But he wasn't strong enough to stay close to Christ through that time. And I look at Peter. He thought he was going to be strong enough to stay faithful to Christ. Even when Jesus had clearly said, you're all going to fall away. Peter said, no, I won't. Pride was what caused him to succumb to the temptation to flee when Jesus was arrested and then to deny Christ three times. I think of Proverbs chapter 16, um, 16 verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Pride goes before destruction. If, if we are prideful, we, we set ourselves up and that is a great recipe for falling hard on our faces. I think we all need to be careful to recognize we are all vulnerable. One of my passions is to never say that I will not ever fall away from Jesus. To never say that I am immune from ever being able to have an affair. To never say that, that I will not do something that dishonors Christ. I don't want to do those things. But I also recognize that we all are frail human beings who, given the right circumstances, can give in to temptation. And so we need to check ourselves constantly. Check, is there pride? Is there fatigue that may cause us to give in? Is there 
um, some sort of uh, fear that may cause us to be unfaithful to Christ, be checking ourselves, or else we too may go down a route that we never imagined we would go. Now I want to move on to the third case study, that of Judas. Judas is the most well-known uh, person. If you were on a family feud game show and the host said, okay, 100 people surveyed, name someone who, who betrayed a friend. I practically guarantee Judas would be at the top of that list. He's well-known for betraying Jesus. And we see um, what takes place in verse 47 uh, of Matthew 26. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And so we see Judas here who, I mean, he was one of Jesus' followers. And he betrays Jesus to be crucified. I think that oftentimes Judas is a bit misrepresented uh, where you see the paintings of Judas, say at the Last Supper or something, and for some reason Judas always has this very sinister look on his face in these paintings. I don't think that was the way he actually looked. I mean, think about the Last Supper. Jesus said, someone here is going to betray me. The disciples all looked around. They had no idea who was going to betray them. They didn't point to Judas and said, hey, I think it's Judas. Look, his eyebrows, they look really sinister. He's going to be the one to do it. They didn't think that Judas was going to be the one. Judas was incredibly trusted among the group of disciples. He was the one who carried the money bag. You don't entrust your money to someone who's untrustworthy. You usually give your money to the person who's most trustworthy. And so I think Judas was a bit misrepresented oftentimes when we think about him because I don't think he set out to, to, to betray Jesus when he started following Jesus. But things began to happen over the course of time that caused him to reach that point that, that he'll forever regret. And one of the reasons is the love of money, greed. And we see several different instances that, I mean, he sold Jesus um, over to uh, the Jewish people. He asked, how much will you give me if I betray him? We know from another place that he was stealing money from the money bag. He had this greed that, that want, led him to want more and more and more. And that is something that if that's taking root in our hearts to want more money, more possessions, more fame, more notoriety, more, um, more power, that, that can lead us to want to take control of our lives, to focus on those treasures rather than the treasure of Christ. And that can cause us to give into the temptations that lead us away from him. And like I said, I don't think that Judas set out to, to try to betray Jesus from the beginning. But over time, he became disillusioned. You see, he was thinking that Jesus was going to be this earthly king who would overthrow the Romans. I think over time he began to realize that's not what Jesus' intent was. His mission was different, and he was upset. And I think that disillusionment was one of the main reasons that Judas ended up betraying Jesus. And I think about disillusionment in our lives. It's one of the main reasons why people end up turning away from God. That they have these unwritten expectations about what they think God should do. They think, if God really cared about me... I would not have these financial difficulties. If God really cared about me, I would not have cancer. If God really cared about me, I would not have this or this or this, or this would be different. And basically, they say, God is not doing the job that I think he should be doing, and this begins to sow seeds of doubt, and it be can begin to cause people to become disillusioned and to give in to temptations that turn away from God. 
Now, when you think of temptations, sometimes we, we're confining those thoughts of what these temptations are to just sexual temptations or something like that. But there are the temptations to doubt God's goodness. There are the temptations to doubt the truthfulness of Scripture. There are all kinds of different temptations out there. There's the temptation just to be lazy, to put God in the back burner. And after a while, if we do that long enough, we're eventually going to wander away from God. But we have all these different factors there are more than these five, but these are five that we can identify from these case studies of the disciples. These factors can lead us to temptations that lead us away from God. Now, the nice thing is that even though the disciples all deserted Jesus, they fled, they ran away to protect themselves, that was not the end of the story. Because three days later, Jesus was resurrected. He came back to the disciples and he restored them. And I think I want to point out a few different reasons, three different reasons to be exact, for hope and encouragement, uh, even from these stories that we've been looking at. One reason for hope and encouragement is that Jesus gives tremendous grace. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't shun the disciples. Instead, he went right back to them and reaffirmed his love for them. And even more amazingly, he affirmed his trust in them. He gave them a commission to go out and represent him to the world. I mean, this shows tremendous grace. And I think this is hope for us too. If we look at something in our past and say, well, there's no way that God could ever love me or use me again. If we look at our present and say, well, there's this ugly stuff going on over here. Surely God doesn't want to deal with that. Or if something happens sometime in the future that is incredibly dishonoring God in our lives, we can still remember God gives us tremendous grace through Christ. And this can give us hope to keep on going. Secondly, Jesus is worthy of our commitment. This is another thing that gives us hope. Look at what the disciples did after, uh, after Jesus was resurrected. Even though they'd all been unfaithful before his crucifixion, every one of them was faithful to the death. Ten of the eleven remaining disciples after Judas um, betrayed Jesus, ten of the eleven died for their faith in Christ. They were put to death because they were Christians. They were not unfaithful to Jesus again. The 11th disciple, John, he was exiled for his faith in Christ, and he ended up dying a natural death. They were faithful to Christ until the end. Peter, who denied Jesus, he was going to be crucified for his faith, and he actually told the Romans, I don't consider myself worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord Jesus Christ. And so they crucified him upside down. They were faithful to the end. They considered Jesus worthy of the commitment of their lives, and we ought to as well. And the third reason for hope and encouragement, this is not straight out of this passage, but it's always true even still when we talk about these things. Christian community offers support. Think of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. It says, Let us encourage one another. Don't give up meeting together. One of the telltale signs that I see nearly 100% of the time when someone falls away from Christ is that before that big turn away from Christ comes, they begin to pull themselves away from Christian fellowship. Not just from church attendance, but especially from, from deeper and more intimate Christian fellowship where they receive accountability and encouragement and prayer and support and share life together. Christian community can be an incredible source of accountability and encouragement to keep us going in our faith. I want to challenge you, be engaged in Christian community, not just in the church service, but beyond. 
because this can help keep you faithful and keep me faithful in our walks with God. Now, I want to encourage us to examine our lives. See, what are those chinks in the armor that may derail us at some point in the future? And address those things in a healthy way so that we can stay faithful to God. The key isn't how we start in our Christian life. The key isn't the bumps in the road and the times we fall. The key is if we get up and keep going and finish strong. My prayer for each of us is that at the end of our lives, we'll be able to say along with the Apostle Paul, that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, it's humbling when we look at all the people around us who have not been faithful, and we look at the disciples and, and their unfaithfulness at times. We look at our lives and recognize that we too have had times that we've been unfaithful. But Lord, we pray that you will help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be humble and to recognize those chinks in the armor that, that may lead us away from you. And Lord, help us to receive your grace. We thank you for your amazing, tremendous, gracious grace that you give us, that even when we stumble and fall, that you welcome us back with open arms so that we can get back up and through depending on your spirit, finish this race strong. I pray that each one of us gathered here today will do this. We'll finish this race of faith strong. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise and join us. thank you for your amazing grace. We are so unworthy, Lord. But as we leave today, may we go with a sense of your grace and your love and your affection upon us, Lord. You've already shown us through Christ how much you love us. And even though we may be tempted at times to doubt your love, all we have to do is look back to the cross and remember what you've done on our behalf. So, Lord, as we go, may we remember your grace. May we go with grateful hearts and with the desire and a conviction and a will to follow you faithfully. 
We love you and thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. May go in peace.